A century ago, the body of an unknown soldier was returned from the old front line. Buried amongst kings in Westminster Abbey, he became Britain's unknown warrior of the Great War. Today, as the clock strikes eleven, we might think of him, or perhaps our own unknown warriors. Today is Armistice Day, the day the guns fell silent, the subject that we covered in the previous episode of The Old Front Line. On this day in 1918, the Great War on the Western Front came to an end, with the signing of the Armistice and the war ending at 11 o'clock on the 11th day of the 11th month. Today is a day that many of us observe in addition to Remembrance Sunday to commemorate in particular the dead of the Great War. Normally, I would be in Ypres for the ceremonies at the Menin Gates or at my local war memorial here in South Yorkshire, but this strange year in which we're living, none of that is possible. And today, I'll walk down on my own as part of my daily exercise and go and visit a single war grave in Elska Churchyard. Here I'll stand at the grave of Arthur Woolley of the 10th Battalion, the West Yorkshire Regiment, he was a lad from Elsica, from the village. In many respects, when I stand at his grave, I'm looking at his entire world. Church Street is just ahead of me, and he lived at the back of a brickyard there, just a few hundred metres from where his grave is today. I can look just to my right, and there's the school that he attended as a young man. And over my shoulder is the Elsica Canal, and the site of the old Elsica Colliery, where he worked after leaving school as a boy. He was a conscript, conscripted in 1918. He spent less than 200 days in the army. He went across just as the British army was smashing the German positions on the Western Front in the battles of the Hindenburg Line, and he was wounded in the Battle of the Sel near the village of Neuville. He came back to Britain, was treated for his wounds in London, and then sadly died of his wounds on the 30th of November 1918 in the Northern General Hospital in Sheffield. Arthur is my local connection to the old front line. I see his grave, his solitary white headstone, in the local cemetery, from the bus, or when I'm walking down through the village. He's a known soldier of the Great War, with an identified grave. But for nearly half the dead of that war, there was no grave, no sepulchre, no place to stand. They were the missing, and the subject of the missing was brought into sharp focus a century ago, when the body of the unknown warrior was buried in Westminster Abbey. But how did it come to be that an unknown soldier of the Great War was buried in such circumstances? Well, France had established the precedent for an unknown warrior at Verdun. There they'd selected a number of bodies from key French battlefields, and one had been chosen at random to be buried under the Arc de Triomphe. But for Britain, the idea was closely connected to an army chaplain, David Ralton, who had had the idea as early as 1916. He'd served with the London Division in the fighting around High Wood and the Sars. There's a place there on the old front line called Crucifix Corner, a wrought iron crucifix with an original figure of Christ peppered with shrapnel that stood there during the battle in 1916, and it was there that he tended to the wounded and the dying, and when a soldier died, he wrapped him in a British flag, and that flag eventually would be draped over the coffin of the unknown warrior. So he'd had the idea in 1916, and when the war was over in 1920, he approached Herbert Ryle, who was the Dean of Westminster, and he championed the idea for Ralton, 
and got the government and the king involved, and the idea for the selection and reburial of an unknown soldier in Westminster Abbey came about. But why do it? Well, on every British battlefield of the Great War, nearly half of the dead, sometimes more than half of the dead, were missing. They had no known grave. Men had disappeared into the mud at Passchendaele, had been buried on the battlefields, but their graves lost in later fighting. So many were gone, and there was no trace of them. Somehow it was felt that there had to be some focus for the families of these men, some place for them to go, some place for them too to remember, to have what we'd now perhaps call closure, if you can ever have closure to a son or a brother or a husband who marched to war and simply disappeared. But it was felt that if you buried an unknown soldier chosen from those battlefields in a place like this, this could be your son or your brother or your husband or your father. This could be the place that you could come and think and remember. So in France, a team had been set up to scour the battlefields for the Great War for the bodies of unknown British soldiers. They would search the four key British battlefields of the Great War on the Western Front, the ground around the Belgian city of Ypres, which for four years had seen four major battles and a quarter of a million British and Empire dead. Next, the ground between Luz and Arras, where the battles of 1915 and the fighting on the Hindenburg Line of 1917 and 18 had taken place. The battlefields of the Somme, when halfway through the war, the men of the new army, Kitchener's army, had marched into battle amongst the fields of Picardy and paid such a heavy price. And then the ground in the Marne and the Aisne around Soissons, where the old contemptibles of 1914 had fought, and where conscripts at the other end of the war had stemmed the tide of the German advance on the Chemende d'Arme, or pushed them back in the Second Battle of the Marne in the summer of 1918. On all these battlefields there were thousands, tens of thousands of British missing, and Gray's registration unit teams already working on these battlefields to recover and rebury the dead were finding thousands of unidentified soldiers probably on a daily basis. But the task here was to bury a British unknown soldier in Westminster Abbey, not a man from the Empire, not an Australian, Canadian, South African, New Zealander, or someone from the myriad of nations that had fought alongside Britain on the Western Front. Even worse, of course, was the idea of burying a German soldier in Westminster Abbey, because if you were searching for an unidentified soldier, Surely that was the risk, that this could be anybody from anywhere. So how did they overcome this? Well, the Western Front Association, which is an organisation that this year celebrates its 40th anniversary, 40 years since author John Giles founded the WFA in November 1980, has just published a special edition of Stand To, its magazine, with a detailed description and history of the story behind The Unknown Warrior. And I would thoroughly recommend membership of the Western Front Association. You can find their website, and I'll put a link to it on the Old Frontline website, oldfrontline.co.uk. And it's worth joining, really, even just for this one magazine. But on top of that, you get a regular magazine, and there's local meetings and all sorts of online resources. And in that special edition, there is a detailed analysis of the methods and the tasks that lay before these men to try and recover an unknown British soldier. It was largely done through searching in areas where they knew the British Army had fought, which was obviously all of the locations that we've spoken about. 
but also looking in detail at the artefacts and the uniform fragments that were found with bodies. If there was indication that the soldier had an Australian tunic or Canadian-style equipment or some form of insignia that might indicate service in an Empire regiment rather than a British one, then these could be discounted and the search would continue. In the end, bodies were selected from all these battlefield sites, and in a great deal of secrecy, one was selected. I suspect we'll probably never know exactly how this process was worked out and how it operated that day, but a soldier was chosen, and he became the unknown warrior. The ones not chosen were returned to the battlefields and reburied there, and this was in contrast to both the French and the American approach. The French buried their unknown soldiers that were not chosen in a special grave in the Pavé Cemetery at Verdun, and the Americans reburied theirs side by side in the Meurs-Argonne American Cemetery, close to the battlefields of Verdun and where the American army fought in 1918. The whole process of choosing this soldier had taken place at a British army camp at St Paul, a town that had been behind the lines and part of the British infrastructure of the Western Front during the war. There in November 1920, these remains were transferred to a coffin made of English oak. This was all about symbolism, and the coffin was mounted with a crusader's sword, an original crusader's sword, taken from the private collection of King George V, because this was a warrior, remember. On the 9th of November 1920, he was moved from St. Paul to Boulogne, where he spent that night protected again symbolically by French troops. This was their last hurrah to an ally that had fought beside them in the trenches of the Great War. The next day, he was taken by gun carriage to the docks and on to HMS Verdun, and the bell from that ship is now mounted by the unknown soldier's grave in Westminster Abbey and is rung on the 11th of November to bring the Abbey to silence as part of the Armistice Day commemorations. HMS Verdun took him to Dover Western Docks, and there, amongst the soldiers that would accompany him on his journey to London, he was met by Sir Douglas Haig, Field Marshal Haig, the former Commander-in-Chief of the British Expeditionary Force on the Western Front, and it was quite likely that this unknown warrior was once one of his men. At Dover, the coffin was transferred to a special train, and the carriage that bore his coffin had been used during the war to carry the coffins of Nurse Edith Cavell and Captain Charles Fryatt, both of whom had been executed by the Germans and were national heroes during the Great War. The carriage is now preserved at the Kent and Sussex Railway in Bodium and is well worth going to see. On the 10th of November 1920, it arrived at Victoria Station in the evening and there he would rest for one last night before the next day, on the 11th of November, he would begin his journey to his final resting place and a cortege with his coffin on a gun carriage, flanked by British veterans of the Great War, took him along Constitution Hill, the Mall, through Whitehall and then to the Cenotaph. Here, King George V was waiting and thousands and thousands of mourners, people who had connections, no doubt, to the missing of the Great War. From the Cenotaph, the King accompanied him to Westminster Abbey, and here he was buried amongst kings. It still remains the most honoured tomb in Westminster Abbey. It's the only one that cannot be walked across. You can walk across the graves of kings, commanders, but not the unknown warrior. On entering the abbey, he was flanked by a hundred war widows and mothers 
who had lost sons in the Great War. Again, all about symbolism. These were the families who had lost their all, and flanked also by a hundred recipients of the Victoria Cross, men who had been awarded Britain's highest decoration, had seen and experienced some of the bitterest fighting on the Western Front, and no doubt as they saw that carriage and the coffin enter the Abbey, they thought back to their own service and their mates who they'd seen die alongside them, many of them perhaps with no known grave. Buried in that grave at the western end of the nave of Westminster Abbey, it was filled with soil from the battlefields of the old front line, more symbolism. And in the days and the weeks and the months and the years that followed, thousands, millions of people have made that journey to his tomb. It became that potent symbol of sacrifice, the point at which people could stand and remember, remember them all if they wished, but for the families of the missing, here was at least something for them. It could be their boy, it could be their man, it could be their son, it could be their brother. And a few years later, on the 26th of April 1923, Queen Elizabeth, the late Queen Mother, on her wedding to Prince Albert, the Duke of York, as she entered Westminster Abbey, she laid her wedding bouquet on the tomb of the unknown warrior. This was done purposefully by her to remember her brother, Fergus Bowes Lyon, who had been killed with the Black Watch at the Battle of Lewes and had no known grave. His name was listed on the Black Watch panels of the Lewes Memorial. And this set a tradition in the royal family of laying wedding bouquets on the tomb of the unknown warrior, which has continued to this day. It's a tomb that means so much to us all, no matter what our background. And for those of us connected to the old front line, it is a place to go to and stand and wonder what is the history behind the man who lies in that grave. But in our own family trees, we have our own unknown warriors. There are names that in the past have perhaps slipped from the pages of our family history. And as we have become interested in the Great War, we find these relatives, we bring them out of the past and they become real people again. We visit their graves or we see their names on memorials, but not just in our own families. This week, as we've pondered on the sacrifice of the two world wars and we've perhaps visited our local war memorial or gone shopping in our town or village, we have walked in the world the men of the Great War once inhabited, the world that they'd once fought for, is a world that we walk past every day. These are in many respects the shadows of the Great War. The Great War is all around us, the houses in which these men lived, the places that they worked. These are all part of our connections to the Great War. And there are more unknown warriors. For many, many years, and I often talk about the junk shops of Sussex that I used to trawl through, I picked up thousands and thousands of postcards of the First World War of ordinary soldiers very few of them ever had a soldier's name on. So here is this archive of unknown warriors, of these faces looking out of the past, men on active service in France and Belgium, soldiers in training, men on home leave, amazing photographs, incredible portraits, sometimes piercing eyes that seem to call to you from those times and somehow hail to you to never forget. And then when we travel along the old front line, and I find myself doing this more and more, when we walk the silent cities, the cemeteries of the Great War, we see so many graves of unknown soldiers, sometimes a rank, sometimes a regiment, sometimes a year. But more often than not, 
just that simple verse chosen by Kipling, a soldier of the Great War, known unto God. And while people like to find highly decorated soldiers, the graves of interesting characters buried in many of these cemeteries, I do find myself being drawn to these unknown graves and standing and pausing at them just as I've paused at the grave of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey and muse as to who they are, who they were, who they loved and who loved them. And as a final nod to these unknown warriors, I'm holding in my fingers now a little brass button, a Great War button, with the crown of King George V and the symbol of a gun carriage. It's the button of a soldier of the Royal Artillery. Where I grew up in Crawley in Sussex, Crawley was a new town. People came from all over, in particular London. And when I was little, I lived in a block of flats. And a very kind lady who I called my Auntie Wynne, she wasn't my auntie, but she was always to me. She used to look after me. And I loved going to her flat because she had a little record player. And we didn't. And she used to play all sorts of silly records and keep me amused as a child. Many years later, as an adult, after having just come back from the Western Front battlefields, I went to see her, as I often did, and she asked where I'd been, and I told her, and she went away and came back, and she held out her hand, and in it was this button, and I looked at it and I said, thank you, I don't have one of these, this is great, and I turned it over, and it had been broached, and then I realised that it was more than just a button. The reverse had been opened up, and inside, just below a little tiny mica screen, was the face of a soldier, a Great War soldier, wearing the dress uniform of the Royal Artillery, this faded face looking back at me. So I said to my auntie Wynne, Who is this man? Was it someone that you knew? And she paused, and she looked down, and I could see tears welling up in her eyes. And she said, Yes, she said, That was the man that I would have married, should have married, but the war took him from me. Who was he? I can't tell you, she said. You don't remember? No, it's not that. I can't say his name. Don't ask me to say his name. I can't ever tell you his name. It hurts me to even say it, even think it. And so when I look at this, and I hold it in my hand, this, more than anything, is my unknown warrior, who is out there somewhere on the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>